Welcome to a podcast of AOC 2020 organized by Dr. Dev Pelajani, Dr. Satyavan Sharma, Dr. Ajit Desai and Dr. Akshay Mehta of the Academy of Cardiology Mumbai. This podcast is produced by the rightdoctors.com digital knowledge partners to the event. Coming up, a talk by Dr. Anuradha Lala on risk factors and etiology of heart failure. So I'm going to speak to you over the next 20 minutes or so on risk factors and etiology of heart failure in women. We'll discuss briefly the epidemiology, some traditional risk factors and some sex specific risk factors. And I'm hoping to challenge you and help you think outside of the box as I've learned to do as well in terms of how we look at risk factors and etiology of heart failure in women. So this is a beautiful schematic out of a paper that just came out in the European Heart Journal um written by Carolyn Lamb and colleagues just a few weeks ago that kind of nicely summarizes how we should think about risk factors and etiology of heart failure in women versus men. And we'll keep coming back to this slide because much like the Jack articles have um promoted this is kind of a sort of a central figure to this talk. You can see here that the phenotypes for women that are increasing or have gotten more attention or heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and of course sex specific Takotsubo's cardiomyopathy or stress induced cardiomyopathy peripartum cardiomyopathy which we'll speak about later today and what we tend to see in these patients is greater exercise limitation which we spoke about a little bit yesterday in the talk on cardiopulmonary exercise testing this lack of cardiac reserve or an unmasking of the reserve when these patients are forced to exercise lower quality of life in women and surprisingly with that better survival so we haven't talked a lot about quality of life thus far in this conference and i think that's critically important to mention Phenotypes that are more prevalent in men are heart failure with res- uh, reduced ejection fraction and these patients tend to see a higher mortality and a better quality of life conversely. So we'll come back to a number of these risk factors uh, that point to why these phenotypes occur. So what is the lifetime risk of heart failure in men and women? Depending on what study you look at, if we look at Framingham, it's about 20% in both men and women. If you look at Rotterdam, it's a little bit higher at 30% in both men and women. So if the lifetime risk of heart failure is the same, who cares? Are there differences? Do they matter? So let's go back to the slide that I showed you yesterday. This is a very simple approach. Like I said, I'm a simple person. When you think about heart failure you want to think about heart failure with reduced ejection fraction and preserved ejection fraction our guidelines tell us to look at them in a binary way with less than 40 and greater than 40 when in fact there is an intermediate ejection fraction category that exists between 40 and 50% which is largely a data free zone and it's important for us to separate out and think about and both of these lead to the acute decompensated state or the hospitalized patient with heart failure and then patients with chronic heart failure in the chronic or outpatient state and the epidemiology and how you talk about risk factors depend on which specific entity you're looking at are we looking at the hospitalized patient or are we looking at the chronic patient are we looking at preserved ef or are we looking at reduced ef So before we get into sex specific differences let's just talk a little bit about what the distribution is of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction versus preserved ejection fraction across 
the globe. And unfortunately, India wasn't included in this study. But you can see that here that it varies. If we're talking about the US, the distribution is 50-50, whether it's inpatient or outpatient. You can see here, so it's 46% reduced, 46% preserved, and about a little less than 10% that fall in that intermediate category of ejection fraction. The same is true of certain countries in Europe. But when we look at other countries, there seems to be a predominance or a higher prevalence of heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. And I would just challenge that because heart failure with preserved ejection fraction can be a challenging entity, it may be in fact that we are under-diagnosing or under-recognizing this entity. And that's why it's being reported as less, less common. So I, I tend to believe more of this US data. Uh, I think more epidemiological studies are needed. But as far as we're concerned in our population, we think of them as a 50-50 prevalence. So now let's talk about where we are with men versus women. There are a number of epidemiological studies across the globe describing trends in heart failure among men and women. Rather than going through each one of them, I want to summarize the, following, the findings as follows. This is a nice study done out of Olmsted County in Minnesota between January 1st, 2000 and December 31st, 2010. Patients were stratified by sex and ejection fraction. And the incidence in heart failure overall declined for both men and for women. But there was a greater decline for women in heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. I don't know if you can see here, this is marked by the orange line here. And not so much of a decline, but rather maybe decline overall, but not so much of a decline in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. On the other hand, Heart failure with reduced ejection fraction did not decline as much for men, whereas heart failure with preserved ejection fraction did. So what's the take home here? Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction seems to be, although overall the incidence has declined on the whole during this decade, preserved ejection fraction less so than reduced ejection fraction in women. But let's take a minute to stop and talk a little bit about HFPEF. There are sex-based differences in phenotypes of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So even though heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or HFPEF is on the rise in women more so, among these patients with HFPEF, there are important differences. So Sanjeev Shah has done some beautiful work out of Northwestern, really trying to phenotype these patients with HFPEF. One of the reasons we speculate that trials have been negative thus far in HFPEF is because we treat it like a grab bag disease. Anybody with dyspnea and a normal ejection fraction has HFPEF. When we now know or we're starting to understand that that might be too broad of a bucket and we need to further phenotype these patients. So he's described three distinct phenotypes of HFPEF. One is the younger female with less adverse remodeling, so left less concentric remodeling, and lower BNPs. And by virtue of having lower natriuretic peptide levels, we see that these patients are often excluded for clinical trials, because what are the criteria? You have to have preserved ejection fraction, symptoms of heart failure, and a high natriuretic peptide level. The second phenotype he's described is the obese female patient with more diabetes and markedly abnormal diastology. These are the folks who have tremendous limitation to exercise. Why? Because their filling pressures rise precipitously with any type of exertion.
And then finally, he's described older patients who are more likely to be male as opposed to the first two phenotypes. They're more likely to have chronic kidney disease, more adverse left ventricular remodeling, and these patients tend to have the highest rates of adverse outcomes according to his study. And these you can see here. So this is the first phenotype I described, the younger patient with less remodeling and lower BNP levels. This is the second cohort of patients with diabetes and markedly abnormal diastology, followed by the patients who more likely tend to be men and older with chronic kidney disease and more adverse outcomes. But this may not be the whole story. Other studies, now this is a beautiful um, study that was just published a few months ago, that combined patients from TopCat, so this was the study of HEFPEF and spironolactone worldwide, I preserved and charmed, charmed added, all HEFPEF patients. So they combined all of these patients, and they really found two distinct phenotypes. The younger patient with HEFPEF, who tended to be male, and tended to be more obese, and then the older heart failure patient who tended to be female, tended to have higher left atrial size, and tended to have clinical outcomes that were uh, more consistent with non-cardiovascular death versus cardiovascular causes of death in the younger obese male patients. So what does that tell us? I showed you two slides with different types of phenotypes. I think it tells us that we still don't fully understand this concept and more work needs to be done in this field. But important sex-based differences do exist. We just need to learn a little bit more about it. So let's talk about some of the traditional risk factors. I could sit here and tell you what you already know, that heart failure in women tends to be more associated with valvular disease and hypertension, and heart failure in men is more attributable to coronary artery disease. But I think this audience is more sophisticated than that. So I'm going to come back again to the central figure of this talk. The significant comorbidity burden is more often seen in the HEFPEF patient who is a woman, emotional stress we'll talk about, greater vascular stiffness, systemic inflammation, hypertensive disorders of pregnancy, breast cancer treatment, and greater concentric LV remodeling. So let's first talk about diabetes. What's the take home here before I even start showing you the data? When present, and we heard this yesterday as well, when present, diabetes is a stronger risk factor for heart failure in women than in men when present. In the Framingham study, diabetes had a five times risk of heart failure in women and a two times increased risk in men. Women with diabetes tend to have more adverse LV remodeling, increased LV wall thickness, and thereby increased LV mass index, but in Asian women, and this is interesting, despite a lower BMI, we see this lean diabetic phenotype that is associated with poor nutrition, lower socioeconomic status, and a predisposition to visceral adiposity. And we know this is now a more distinct subtype. These also patients, by the way, are, they seem to be more receptive to spironolactone or mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists, where you're seeing more visceral fat as opposed to just subcutaneous fat. So now we've talked a little bit, it's a perfect segue into obesity. This is a central um, illustration from uh, Pandey et al. This was again just done a, a few years ago that talks about how obesity may lead to the heart failure. 
Worldwide, the prevalence of obesity is actually higher amongst women compared to men. And we've already talked about HFPEF is more likely in women if they are obese. And there's more and more understanding now that maybe HFPEF is driven by inflammation. And inflammation is in part due to obesity and diabetes. This is something we mentioned yesterday. Why is it that women have a lower VO2? We've talked about lower hemoglobin, we've talked about lower muscle mass, but we also postulated that there may be decreased vascular um, uh, distribution in, in peripheral muscles, which leads to less oxygen extraction. So adipose-derived vasoconstrictors may lead to impaired tissue perfusion, both in the myocardium, leading to this sort of microvascular ischemia that we've talked about, as well as in the skeletal muscles. And I think that's a very fascinating area that's ripe for research. Hypertension. We've talked about the fact that this is uh, when present when heart failure is present in women, it's generally more commonly due to hypertension as opposed to coronary artery disease in men. In the Framingham risk study, uh, Framingham Heart Study rather, the risk of heart failure was threefold in hypertensive women compared to a twofold increase in hypertensive men. And as I've mentioned, the population attributable risk of hypertension was also greater in women compared to men. But this is where I would urge you again to think about exercise-induced hypertension, going back to that second phenotype that Sanjeev Shah described with very abnormal diastology. So put these, put these women on a treadmill. I was speaking to someone yesterday who told me that pharmacologic stress testing is often emphasized here. When you can put your women, your female patients on a treadmill, watch them exercise, understand what's limiting them. Why are they limited? How soon are they limited? A lot of these folks have an unmasking of this phenotype when you put them on a treadmill. Tobacco smoking. So we know tobacco smoking uh, was established actually in the first National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey, the NHANES study, as a very prominent risk factor for incident heart failure, independent of coronary disease and other heart failure risk factors. So, but in women, there was an 88% higher risk of heart failure if they were smokers compared to a 45% higher risk in men. The reason that this is not really sort of well known or publicized is because worldwide, fewer women smoke compared to men. But if you are a smoker, and this is kind of a, a running theme, so you take all of the traditional risk factors, if present in a woman, they portend a higher risk of heart failure compared to the male counterparts with the same risk factor. And the same is true of, of tobacco smoking. So no, realizing that women were more exposed to it and it was an under-recognized problem, the World Health Organization chose gender and tobacco as their theme for the World No Tobacco Day in 2010. And there it was re revealed that secondhand smoke caused more deaths among women compared to men, and more women were smoking light cigarettes, e-cigarettes, things that they were falsely thinking to be healthier versions of cigarettes. Of note, and we'll talk a little bit about this later on, tobacco is also a risk factor for peripartum cardiomyopathy, so that's important for us to keep in mind. What about socioeconomic status? How does that influence the incidence of heart failure, the risk of heart failure? So this was a nice study done combining the Alicicarin trial to minimize outcomes in patients with heart failure, the atmosphere trial, and the trial of Secubitril and Valsartan in over 8,000 patients, the Paradigm HF trial, that was 
really highlighted the importance of income inequality and its influence on heart failure risk across 54 countries across the globe. And the, the Gini turtle essentially just denotes uh, income inequality. So the highest Gini turtle has the most income inequality as opposed to the lowest, which has more um, equitable income. And what you can see, and it's, it's a little hard to see, I apologize, is that the highest Gini turtle, again, that with the most income inequality, had the highest proportion of women. As such, despite adjusting for known risk factors, these patients also seem to have the highest risk of cardiovascular death and heart failure hospitalization. So despite lower comorbidity burden, these patients with lower income inequality, or rather higher income inequality, were more likely to be women, and these patients were at higher risk of heart failure hospitalization and CV death. What about genetics? How does that play in, come into play? We hear about uh, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, as it was just mentioned, dilated cardiomyopathies that are Titan gene-mediated, long QT syndrome, Brugada syndrome. These are increasingly recognized pathologies in the current uh, era sequencing advancements, but they tend to be more seen in men compared to women. However, X-linked mutations, such as Duchenne's muscular dystrophy or the Dannon diseases, which are deficiencies in lysosome-associated membrane proteins, have sex-specific phenotypes due to hemizygosity in males and mosaic X-linked patterns in women. So just because it's a Duchenne's patient doesn't mean that it's always going to be in a man because the female is a car uh, carrier. You have to think about that still in certain rare cases where there may be mo mosaicism in the women phenotype. So let's move from some of those traditional risk factors. Again, the take home there is that when present, they tend to confer a higher risk in women compared to men. But what about the sex specific risk factors? So peripartum cardiomyopathy, we'll talk about again. Worldwide, this disease affects one in 1,000 pregnancies. So not uncommon. Ranging from one to 100 to one in 1,000 pregnancies in Africans, one in 1,500 in Germany, and then one in 10,000 in Denmark in Caucasian populations, and one in 15,000 in Japan. So it varies across the globe. What are the risk factors for peripartum cardiomyopathy? Environmental factors such as low selenium levels and various infections have been linked. Pregnancy-associated conditions such as preeclampsia. In fact, I think of preeclampsia as really as a, as a continuum, uh, that preeclampsia is at the beginning sort of the stages, with hypertension in pregnancy, then leading to preeclampsia, and then peripartum cardiomyopathy being at sort of the end stage of that continuum. Genetic predisposition, it's sort of a two-hit hypothesis has been, has been entertained a lot. Impairment in the immune system and the autoimmune uh, reactions in a woman may predispose her to peripartum cardiomyopathy. And then altered cardioprotective signaling. We've talked about how pregnancy is a cardiovascular stress test that may unmask latent cardiovascular disease or inherently alter the cardiovascular system, their endothelial function, their inflammatory profile, there's more oxidative stress that's released in these patients, thus predisposing them to the development of heart failure. And finally, breast cancer. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in women and shares common epidemiologic risk factors with cardiovascular disease, including age, obesity, 
tobacco use, and even some genetic mutations, as we've talked about with traditional risk factors. In breast cancer survivors, cardiovascular mortality, however, exceeds oncologic mortality. And that's an incredibly important point to point out to your patients. Anthracyclines still play an important role in the current treatment era. Doxorubicin-induced LVEF declines occur in 10 to 15% of patients. So this is still a mainstay of therapy for breast cancer treatment, but we do see LVEF decline that's fairly common. And what kind of declines do we expect to see? It can range anywhere from 3 to 7%. Trastizumab, which is the humanized monoclonal antibody that disrupts HER2 new signaling, LVEF declines in up to 13% with this monoclonal antibody. And many patients, we have to keep in mind, a third of breast cancer patients, in fact, are treated with both anthracyclines and trastuzumab. And the LVEF decline in those patients is even more frequent. Radiation therapy has been linked to the development of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And then finally, we mentioned yesterday, for those patients who have to undergo oophorectomies or bilateral salpingectomies, endocrine therapies and ovarian suppression therapies may play a role in the development of chemotherapy-related heart failure. Takotsubo's cardiomyopathy, again, a sex-specific entity. The coronary microcirculation is innervated by neurons that originate in the brainstem and mediate vasoconstriction. What happens in this phenomenon, I think we're all very well aware. Myocardial stunning from microvascular dysfunction may be of neurogenic origin. The impact along those lines of psychological stress on the heart may be more prominent on women than it is in men. In fact, one study just published in uh, the Journal of American Heart Association recently found that higher psychological distress was associated with future cardiovascular events in women, but not as much in men with coronary artery disease. So if you had pre-existing coronary artery disease, the emotional stress tended to have a bigger role in women compared to men. Again, this is a nice schematic that summarizes some of the topics that we've already spoken about in this review article in the European Heart Journal. There are intrinsic sex differences that we know. Women have poorer diastolic reserve. We've talked about this already. Put them on a treadmill. See what limits them. They tend to be limited early on in their course of exercise. There's abnormal diastology there. To that effect, greater arterial stiffness and greater pulse pressures. They have smaller vasculature. We heard about this yesterday, even in the, in the coronaries. More microvascular disease. There's more concentric as opposed to eccentric ventricular remodeling. And they have stronger immune systems with more inflammation. Some of the epidemiologic factors, we've mentioned this already, higher prevalence of obesity and a stronger relationship with the development of HEF-PEF. Menopause which is marked by hypertension, impaired endothelial function, and increased cardiomyocyte size and fibrosis may be playing a role here. And then there's also the potential role of pregnancy and hypertensive disorders of pregnancy that then predispose to the development of heart failure later on, as we've discussed. All of this leads to phenotypic implications that we see distinctly in women. We've talked ad nauseum about higher LV filling pressures, lower stroke volume recruitment, greater pulsatile afterload, pulmonary vascular dysfunction by virtue of having chronically elevated LA pressures, you're, you're going to develop 
who class two pulmonary hypertension, which we see very commonly in women. And then this obese HFPEF phenotype is what we're seeing in women as well. So that's clearly not it. There are many knowledge gaps that continue to exist, and we still need to push forward to better understand not only sex differences in heart failure, but more about this, this notion of HFPEF and its phenotypes and the sex differences in HFPEF in particular. There is a limited understanding of the pathophysiology for heart failure conditions. Still with Takotsubos, we think we get it, but there's still so much to learn. There's suboptimal risk factor management and primary prevention in women, and we know that, and that those ramifications are widespread and quite obvious. We've talked about adverse LV remodeling. We've talked about more medication-related adverse events. And then again, coming back to this lower quality of life. How often do we ask our patients? I try to make it a point whether many times we have a formal assessment done in clinics, especially if they're a part of clinical trials, which I advocate for very strongly in doing a KCCQ. So really going through the battery of questions and understanding what my patient's quality of life is. And it really gives you a wealth of information. If you can't have that, or if you're limited in time, simply asking the patient, how, how would you rate your quality of life? 10 being the best it could be, one being the worst. Figure out where they are. If they're giving you a five, what can you do to make it better? What's influencing that process? So I think that's something that we don't highlight enough and we do need to really elicit from our patients. So what are the take-homes from this talk? HFPEF is more common in women. So overall, heart failure is, seems to be on the decline, which is fantastic. However, there are sex-specific differences, and the heart failure decline is not so much for HFPEF in women. We need to understand why. We don't fully understand this concept. Traditional risk factors, when present, portend a higher risk of heart failure compared to men, be it diabetes, obesity, tobacco smoking. Sex-specific factors account for distinct presentations of heart failure. We've talked about this already. Takotsubos, breast cancer-related chemotherapy heart failure, and peripartum cardiomyopathy are just some such examples. But we still need to better understand why. With that, I leave you. I want to thank you once again, Dr. Wenger. It has been such an honor and a privilege um, and an unexpected uh, joy to be uh, with you and to have spent some time with you. I want to thank Dr. Sharma and Dr. Balajani, Dr. Desai and the committee once again. And I just want to leave you with a personal note because we talked a little bit about women in cardiology and how we can foster women to enter this field uh, more readily. This was an article published, in fact, by the Harvard Business Review just six months ago that says, you can't be both. Stop trying. Should you be the ideal worker or the perfect mom? And this got a lot of press, and as you would imagine on social media, et cetera, women went wild, particularly, in fact, in the cardiology um, world, uh, the American College of Cardiology women, as well as the American Heart Association. And I would argue that you can. You need people like the planning committee of this wonderful meeting to encourage people like me to foster um, people like me, to take a chance on people like me, to have women up at the podium, to have conferences devoted to this topic. You are listening to a podcast from AOC 2020, organized by Dr. Dev Pelajani, Dr. Satyavan Sharma, Dr. Ajit Desai, and Dr. Akshay Mehta of the Academy of Cardiology, Mumbai. 
This podcast was produced by the rightdoctors.com, digital knowledge partner to the event. We bring insights from the world's best medical minds to audiences worldwide. The Right Doctors is a Google Launchpad digital health startup and is a knowledge partner of choice for medical conferences, CME, specialty journals, and scientific events from the field of medicine. If you like this podcast, share it with your friends and visit our website www.therightdoctors.com.